American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given as part of a professional development seminar. Josh and Donna asked me to talk a little bit about the battlefront and the home front, and so I will, but I will have a caveat to begin with. It's, a, it's an enormous category here. When they asked me to do this, my jaw kind of dropped a little bit. Uh, I don't get to teach Civil War photography very much. I'm a modernist at Mount Holyoke, and probably like many of you, my responsibilities are quite wide, so I teach everything from David to Picasso, and I talk a little bit about Civil War photography in one class on the history of photography. So this is a, a nice chance for me. So let's just begin. The battlefront and the home front, sometimes called the war front and the home front. And they are two useful descriptive as well as heuristic categories, I think. And I think before we get going, let's just sort of wring our hands a little bit with a little bit of anxiety about the usefulness of these terms here, okay? Because I think although it's come down to us conventionally as a way of dividing Civil War photography or Civil War era photography between battlefront and home front, I think from all of our own research, we know that the line between the two is quite ambiguous and sketchy, right? What is the battlefront or the home front in Richmond, right? Or what's the battlefront or the home front in Petersburg, okay? So let's just simply say that the terms themselves, although conventional, are in fact placemakers for a much muddier, murkier body of images here. Maybe one way to describe helpfully for us the differences between the battlefront on the home front is to suggest that they are different kinds of categories for the South and different kinds of categories for the North. Or maybe another way of saying so is to say that at least for the South, the distinction between the battlefront and the home front is one of a temporal nature, right? So Petersburg was at one time a home front during one year and was at one time a battlefront for another year, say, for example, like that. As, and for the North, let's say the distinction between battlefront and home front is not necessarily a temporal distinction, but a geographic distinction here. Once again, these are huge generalizations, but let's kind of get a handle a little bit around that. We might say that the camera, which is going to be my project here today, the camera is eminently suited for both of those kinds of projects because when we you know, click a shutter, we are not only picturing a place, we are picturing time at the same time. And so the camera is eminently suited for not only representing the battlefront and the home front, we might even say is in fact important for marking the distinctions between the battlefront and the home front. You know, take a picture in Petersburg, say in 1861 versus 1864, right? The camera is facilitating usefully, is constructing for us this, this, this distinction here. Okay, so that's a little bit of our, our, our hand wringing a little bit here, okay. But let's just simply say all anxiety put to the side, all anxiety properly stated for ourselves that we'll hang on to this, these distinctions between battlefront and home front here. And let's say for ourselves, the history of photography of the Civil War era has been incredibly unequal in its attention to the battlefront and the home front. I'm bringing on as just one kind of example here, there are many, many, many kinds of examples one can put on, you know, the home front over on the left, right? And I'm kind of cheating here because it's not a photograph, right? Uh, and and uh, the battlefront over on the right, one of Gardner's famous images from Dunker Church in Antietam in 1862. You know, and if you've been looking at this image now for the past couple of minutes, I would bet, if you're like my students, 
you're far more drawn to the image on the left. There are so many more interesting things to say about it, one might say. You know, it's first of all in color versus black and white, right? It invokes a kind of image text confrontation or an image text kind of possibility to it. It interpolates you. There's a narrative. There's a story behind it, right? And we can try to figure out this story. You know, there's the scene over on the far left, which is a kind of orderly, rationalized, peaceful urban scene, the north. Right? And there's the big flag in the middle. And dividing that, it separates to the right side. There's this kind of scene of frenzy and horror and violence, the south. And one can make all kinds of stories about the distinction between the two. You know, and I love these texts as well, you know, wanted. 25 men, right? We can imagine in today's kind of gender studies climate, you know, what kind of homosocial or homosexual reading one can give to this. Wanted 25 men you know, for, for the war effort. So let's just simply say that the image on the left is one that invites all kinds of reading and attention. And by comparison, if you're like my students, the image on the right is a kind of ho-hum image. You know, it quickly seems to exhaust our potential. But let's just simply say, in the historiography of the photography of the Civil War, although the image on the left and many like it can beckon our attention, provide for us all kinds of interventions and kind of interpretations, it's the image on the right that has by far received the most attention, or kinds of images like this. And so although we have battlefront and homefront, let's just simply say, in the historiography of photography, the battlefront has by and far and large received by, well, a huge amount of attention versus the home front. You'll, you'll quickly realize, if you kind of read a little bit of the literature, that uh, this kind of unequal attention uh, to the kind of vast body of material in the Civil War era has led to a kind of truncated vision about the practice of photography itself. You know? Uh, we know that photographers operated uh, across those lines, you know, operated in cities and studios and their home front practices, also traveled with their wagons, followed armies and their battlefront uh, practices. But by and large in the historiography, that it, it, it's, it's kind of the privileging of the practices of the battlefront that have won out over the attentions and the practices of the home front. So for example, you know, Gardner over on the right here, uh, has been celebrated many times along with O'Sullivan and Gibson and all the characters associated with those photographers who followed along with the armies, the kind of ingenious methods they took to develop photography in the field. You know, you know how these things go, right? Wet plate process, you make the plate syrupy, you do this in your wagon, you run to the camera, you take your picture, you run back to the wagon. And all of that has kind of given a rather heroic gloss to it. And that's quite wonderful. I mean, the, 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 the photographers themselves were quite ingenious in the ways in which they worked the difficult conditions of making pictures on the battlefront. But that's also what has done. That attention has kind of unprivileged the equally ingenious methods of photographers on the home front. Uh, and I bring you on an example of a photograph on the left by an unknown photographer of Broadway Street in New York City. And I bet after having looked at that photograph on the left for a while, you might not have realized that it in fact is a photograph of a photographer's studio. It's in fact Matthew Brady's studio. You know that wonderful quote that you've read now in Frasinito's text, or I'm sorry, in, in uh, Keith Davis's text about you know, the, the horrified critic who looks at the Antietam photographs in Brady's studio. In fact, it's in that studio 
where that horrifying takes place. But I bet you can't even tell where the studio is. Uh, show of hands, anybody can, can you sort of, yeah, please. Sure. Yep, Brady's studio is up there on the corner. You know, we might think, what the hell is ingenious about that? <laughs> and I ask my students, you know, all the time, you know, if, well, first of all, I'll put it to you, here's the interactive part of, of this morning here. Uh, why is the studio up there, I think? Yeah, please. Absolutely right. So if you can see where his sign is on top of the sign on the roof, there's this wonderfully newly constructed you know, sunroof with light shining through. He needs all that light to make his exposures, as particularly in a kind of dark and urban environment like this. Okay, so that's ingenuity number one. He chooses the top floor. But I ask my students this as well. You know, uh, if you choose the top floor and you're a commercial enterprising photographer, what are the problems, right, of choosing the top floor? Interactive part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please. Absolutely. Right. Right. How do you get people from down there to up there, right? And so here are all the other kinds of ingenuities that take place. You have all kinds of marketing scams that go on and on. You have barkers on the street. Uh, and then how do you get people to climb the three or four flights up there? Well, you have to entice them with every flight along the way. So there are galleries on the first floor and sitting rooms on the second floor and dining on the third floor. And on the stairway itself, there are all these photographs on each step along the way so you can see the wares that are available to you. In fact, when that horrified critic looks at the Antietam photographs, he's not actually looking at them at the ground floor there. He's actually looking at them in the stairway as he's walking his way up to the very top there, okay? Quite an ingenious photographic solution to the problem of picturing in, in New York. And yet, it's these kinds of practices that have been kind of unprivileged as opposed to the kind of field practices over here. Uh, okay, so that's one kind of beef we have here. So let's just simply say that in the era of Civil War photography, uh, battlefront or warfront pictures get far more attention than homefront pictures, as well as the practices that go on between battlefront and homefront. Okay, let's simply accept that therefore then there's a subset, battlefront gets the thing, right? Even within the battlefront itself, there is a subset of photographs that have gotten the lion's share of attention, right? We know that, you know, if you go by the sheer quantification of the record, that by far the most photographs that were made during the Civil War era were portraits. I forget what the number is. Like, is it two million men served in the Civil War, something like that? I know the number keeps changing around here a little bit, but it's about two million men. And, then, and I would bet that at least half of them had their portraits made. <laughs> that, that means there are a million portraits running around there, and many of them had portraits made more than once. So there are more than a million portraits running around there. There were far, far fewer views made for all kinds of economic reasons. I think uh, Davis, whose article you read, is right on about this. There were just far much more money to be made in portraiture than there were in views. A portrait sitting costs anywhere between 90 cents and about a buck fifty a shot. And if you were a uh, photographer following along with the armies in camp, you could make up to 50 or 60 bucks a day, which is a hell of a lot of money in 1861 and 1862, and far surpassed any other kind of income you can make as a photographer in the cities or with views. You know, 
With portraits, you had a built-in audience. You know, you had built-in patrons for this. Views, you were in terms, of, you were working under speculation. You were making views, and you were hoping you would be able to sell these views through traveling salesmen or through other kinds of services here. And it was a risky, risky adventure. We could say right off the bat that only the more established studios who could afford multiple kinds of photographic supplies actually tried views. Most photographers who took photo Civil War era photographs were portrait photographers, you know, as we see over on the left. And, you know, they were ingenious in their own ways. There were three kinds of processes that were typically common at this moment. There were the amber types, there were the tin types, and there were the albumin prints or carte visites, okay? So, by far, the bulk of photography was portrait photography, and yet we know, in terms of historiography, uh, that's been pushed to the side. And by far, the most studied kind of photography is the view photography. Okay, so we'll accept that as a kind of subset. If we accept the view photograph as the most fetishized kind of photograph, we know that the most common of the view photographs was the stereo view photograph. Uh, for all kinds of economic reasons, I think Davis is right about this as well. A stereo view photograph is made with a kind of two camera setup. Uh, and so your, your negative yielded two images. And it gave you all kinds of flexibility as a photographer. You can cut those images up and have two separate pictures, and you can turn those into views. You can put them together. You can do all kinds of things. The view, stereo view camera tended to be a smaller camera, so you can get around much more quickly and easily with that sort of thing. But let's just simply say, you know, that at least in the historiography of that era, it's not the stereo view that is preferred. It's the single view that has been preferred among scholarship, okay? So, and the single views are, you know, of, of a certain sort here, okay? Let me keep going on with this here, okay? And it's not just the single view that has been the, gotten the lion's share of attention. It's certain kinds of battlefield views with corpses that have gotten the most attention in his, uh, the historiography. And let's sort of think about the oddness of this. I think there were photographers at something like maybe six battles or seven battles that actually photographed corpses out of the thousands of battles, you know, however we define battles that took place during the Civil War era. So let's just simply say we are down to a very, very small subset of photographs that have actually gotten a lot of attention here, you know. The war front versus the home front, the view versus the portrait, the single view versus the stereo view, the corpse view versus anything else, okay? So we're at a really, really small set of images here. Why did this happen? You know, I'm going to take a little bit of a side story here, just very, very briefly. We know that the attention to Civil War photography kind of waned in the early years of the 20th century and only picked up again in the 1930s. And it was picked up in a very strange circumstance. In the 1930s, finally, the wonderful institution here, uh, the Museum of Modern Art, decided to include photography in its offerings, where previously had been completely devoted to paintings. And it decided to house, in 1937, this great exhibition called The History of Photography, 1839 to 1937. And it brought together, under the auspices of the curator of modern art, all the photographs that he was most interested in. There are photographs that Beaumont Newhall, the curator, believed should be in the show, but he didn't quite know how to handle them. These included those photographs by Matthew Brady and Timothy O'Sullivan. And he thought to himself, how do I mix Matthew Brady and Timothy O'Sullivan with Alfred Stieglitz, you know, or how do I mix Matthew Brady with Walker Evans, you know? 
Uh, and it wasn't a very happy marriage. But one of the things he did in an attempt to try to argue for the purposes of photography and the place of photography in the museum was to privilege certain kinds of photographs. So it was the view as opposed to the stereo view and the single image. Because a single image lent itself to a singular framing along that beautiful white wall of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, these objects were deeply aestheticized images. They became kind of these precious objects on par with paintings and other photographs that were finally entering their way into the museum. It really transformed the focus of what had been a much larger interest in Civil War photography. It transformed the way in which those photographs got to be known, how they were distributed, how they were talked about. They were talked about as literally fine art objects. Okay. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, let's sort of rehearse for ourselves here. I'm trying to talk about uneven dyads here, right? Battlefront versus home front, one uneven dialogue. Uh, let's also simply say another uneven dialogue, a dyad in uh, the historiography of Civil War era photography is that the North, images from the North are far more privileges than images from the South. Okay, it's a, it's a very small body of images here, and I just bring this on as one example of the kinds of distinctions here. Okay, well, let's accept that for a second here. And I think what we'll do later on today is we'll probably try to think a little bit for through. I, let, me, let me drop back for a second. We, we, our schedule today is such that we're going to spend some little bit of time in here. We're going to go into the archives in two groups to take a look at some images from the archives there. Some of them will be familiar to us. Some of them... I must confess, I haven't seen myself. One of the selfish things I did was to actually ask Eric, who I hope we'll meet a little later on, to pull out an album of photographs, about 100 pictures for us to take a look. I had never seen the album before myself, so we're going to kind of work our way through that and what kinds of things we can bring to bear on, on those images here. But let's just simply put ourselves back into the kind of dominant discourse of the historiography of this era. And let's talk a little bit about, let's pull out the punches here, the most famous photograph from this moment. I bet you all of you who teach, teach with this photograph probably, right? Or, or, or at least somehow deal with this photograph in lots of ways. Okay, I, I certainly do. It's like the big, you know, when I teach this course, it's the last photograph I teach and it brings on, I, I hope it brings on all kinds of discussion. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, you know? But, but I try very much to kind of use this photograph as that kind of linchpin photograph to think about all kinds of things about ethics of photography and on and on and on. Uh, what I thought we could do is to talk about the ways in which um, these small subset of photographs have been variously interpreted, right? And might give us a sense of the ways in which the era's photography has been variously interpreted. We'll use this as kind of an example here. Um, you all know of the, um, the wonderful uh, choreography that went on behind this photograph, the moving of the body. Uh, what I thought I'd do, I don't know if how many of you have, might have read actually the original account where this is told to us uh, by William Frasinito uh, back in the 1970s here. And what I thought I'd do is to read it to you, talk a little bit about the strategies behind that mode of interpretation right, from the 1970s, and then offer you other kinds of interpretations that have subsequently happened built on the back of this interpretation. Okay, so here is William Frasinito in 1975 writing about this photograph here. Here at the stone wall, constructed by southern soldiers sometime on the night of July 2nd, was the essence of the dens, the dens' more famous role of the battle, that of a sharpshooter position for the Confederates. The location itself was ideal, complete with massive boulders, with the wall, and even a portion of little round top appearing in the distance. But one vital ingredient necessary for a perfect view was missing, 
there were no bodies, right? It one must have been a flash of creative excitement the cameramen chose to improvise. Returning to the position they had just photographed, Gardner's men placed the slain youth's body onto a blanket, seen beneath the shoulder in O'Sullivan's unsuccessful stereo version, which is over on the right. It's hard to see there. There's actually a blanket underneath that, that figure right there. And in all likelihood, carried him themselves some 40 yards up the slope. To complete their composition, the cameraman propped a rifle, definitely not the type used by sharpshooters, against the wall and placed a knapsack under the soldier's head. The purpose of the knapsack was to support a story apparently formulated as Gardner pondered the scene's potential. According to his sketchbook, this soldier, described as a sharpshooter, was wounded at the stone wall by a shell fragment, whereupon the dying boy evidently laid himself down to stoically await his end. Okay, wonderful sort of, you know, story on the part of Frasinito. Um, it was quite typical of that mode of photographic interpretation for this moment in the 1970s. Uh, what did Frasinito want? He wanted to see this photograph as a document. And that meant for him a very close vested kind of image of what a document was. Who shot the photograph, where it was shot, and when it was shot. Okay, and a document in the, the kind of tight way one could possibly imagine or interpret that word. And so he tells us, you know, sometime on the night of July 2nd, this photograph was taken. This photograph was taken after they had seen this body previously. They moved this body up 40 yards up the slope. Uh, and so, one, you know, at the time, it was a kind of remarkable, eye-opening thing to realize that this body actually had been moved. And there was a kind of tremendous amount of groundwork that Frasinito did to kind of arrive at these conclusions. So just when you're trying to figure out, you know, what does one make of this amazing detective work? What kinds of meanings can you ascribe or, or derive from this amazing detective work? Here is Frasinito's conclusion to it all. When one considers that Gardner's crew must have expended approximately a full hour on this one body, they photographed it a total of six times at two different locations, the possibility clearly arises that this may have been one of the last bodies photographed at Gettysburg. Perhaps new subject matter was getting exceedingly scarce as burial operations drew to a close. That's the conclusion. Right? And we might say to ourselves, what a deflating conclusion that is. You know, after all that work, right, to figure out that, well, how do we arrive at a meaning of this photograph? It happened to be one of the last ones. Okay, great, okay. Um, almost immediately when that interpretation was offered, people wanted more. What meanings should we make of this? Uh, but it wasn't until the early 1990s when this photograph elicited a little bit more meaning than that, okay? Uh, what do we make of a dead body? I, I think, I think uh, although the historiography is, you know, uh, I haven't actually looked too closely at this, but I would guess that Elaine Scarry's book probably had a lot to do with it. I don't know if folks have read Elaine Scarry's book, The Body in Pain, here, you know, well, what meanings do you make of a dead body? What meanings do you make of a pained body? I think it had a lot to do with trying to derive meaning from this body here, as opposed to simply saying it was the last body photographed, right? Uh, and so in 1990, here is uh, the kind of new interpretive version of it. This is by William Stapp from a, uh, a book called An Enduring Interest about Gardner. Um, okay, so let me just read to you what Stapp has to say. It is now well known that Alexander Gardner fabricated this photograph by moving the body of the dead sharpshooter, who was probably only an ordinary Confederate infantryman killed in the attack 40 yards uphill to the covert. That seems to be something that's always repeated, right? And positioning it for the photograph. 
It is perhaps even more significant to note that in positioning the body, Gardner physically turned its head to the ca face the camera, possibly against the resistance of rigor mortis. Right? By self-consciously turning the body's face to the camera, however, he betrayed another motive. And here it is, the drum roll is coming, right? Meaning is going to be extracted here. To create an image with a powerful, sentimental, effective impact. And so he brings it into the discourse of sentimentalism, which everyone sort of thinks about as a kind of important discourse for this moment, right? Uh, the face is young, handsome, unquestionably recognizable. It is an ordinary face that seems familiar, even to us today. And precisely because of that, it functions so effectively to universalize the transcendent meaning of this photograph, that tragedy of this boy's death touches us all, as does the tragedy of any soldier's death in war. Okay, so I hope we feel that some kind of generic meaning is being extracted from this photograph, right? It's the you know, universal meaning of tragedy of death in war. Okay, uh, okay, so here he goes. He continues on. However, when we consider Gardner's text as we look at the photographs, we see that he actually intends another parable about justice, right? In constructing the scenario and then sentimentalizing his documentation of it, he was self-consciously creating a compelling but highly moralistic mini-drama, a morality play about the tragic consequences of heedless devotion to an unjust cause, premature, painful, solitary death, the denial of proper burial, and the lifelong suffering of innocent loved ones. Okay, so the body is being given meaning here, right? And it's being given a kind of uh, uh, generic meaning, we might say, but we, I hope we feel that that argument is being tied to certain kinds of strains of American nationalism around this moment in time. Uh, it's also in the early 1990s that there was a demand for a more precise kind of extractable meaning from this. Let me give you another version from this almost the same year from the previous quote. Uh, this is by Timothy Sweet called The Traces of War. Okay, so and I'll bring it on to this one. Whereas William Stapp wants to see that dead body along the discourse of sentimentalism, Timothy Sweet wants to see this photograph along the discourse of pastoralism, another huge argument from this moment in time. Okay, so here we go. A view of a battlefield with or without corpses must necessarily be presented as some sort of landscape. Okay, it's an interesting claim to make. Okay. Civil War photography appealed to the repository of naturalized ideological values contained in the American landscape aesthetic. These images predicted that the destiny of the Union was inscribed on the face of the land itself. So we might ask Timothy Sweet, why the pastoral? And so he tells us. <laughs> Part of the naturalist, nationalist process was to transform all America into a pastoral landscape. Drawing such a pastoral frame around death in war implies that death resulting from war is somehow as natural as any other death. Right? If death in war is natural, then war itself and the politics of war may be regarded as natural. In such a case, the ideology or politics that demand death in war cannot be effectively criticized as cultural strictures which it is possible to modify or dismantle. So we establish, or a suite establishes, or tries to establish that this is a photograph that should best be seen. Its meanings should best be understood within the kind of discourse of pastoralism. What's the payoff then? 
for understanding this photograph, if we accept that kind of discourse, he tells us. The caption suggests that the soldier was at home in this stone structure and the protective rock walls are amenable to the metaphor. Yet it is also clear that this home was not his natural one, failing as it did to protect him from the hostile forces of the world. His natural place is at home in the South. He is an alien in the Pennsylvania landscape, unlike the Northerners who are supposed to be uh, uh, supposed to be such an integral part of this land, and they seem to draw their strength from it and can be imagined to be about to rise and continue the fight. Perhaps images of death at Gettysburg elicited such extensive attempts at pastoral recuperation because the battle was perceived in retrospect as a turning point of the war. Gettysburg was the northernmost point ever occupied by Confederate troops. With the battle, the Confederate uh, uh, offensive was halted, Southerners no longer occupied northern land and began to treat, retreat homeward. Thus, it could be perceived as the first sign of the restoration of the natural balance of the war. Okay, so I hope we kind of get some of Sweet's payoff there a little bit here. Okay, uh, what I want to do as our last example, I hope we have felt certain kinds of interpretive strategies, and they've been pretty characteristic of all kinds of uh, and strategies for, for the historiography of, of the Civil War era. Uh, I'll, I want to move on to one of the more compelling recent interpretations of this work here. And here's where I'll kind of bring on all of those previously underprivileged terms. You know, if we thought that home front was kind of pushed to the side, right? Or if we thought that portraiture was kind of pushed to the side in favor of a smaller subset of images and all the kinds of possible inquiries one could yield or, 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 or apply to those underprivileged images, they somehow come seeping their way back into the kind of more recent interpretations of, of maybe the, the conventional or the iconic photographs. So here's one from 2004 by Franny Nettleman. I hope some of you might have read her work called uh, John Brown's Brody. Okay, so whereas uh, Stapp wants to see this photograph along the discourse of sentimentalism and Sweet wants to see this photograph on the discourse of pastoralism, uh, Franny Nettleman wants to see this along the discourse of domesticity, right? home front images, portraiture, and particularly, what, post-mortem portraiture, right? Uh, you know, dead bodies. How, what, what meanings can one wring from dead bodies? Well, there actually is, Nettleman tells us, a discourse about dead bodies in the middle of the 19th century. Okay, so here's what she says. While antebellum viewers surely recognized the post-mortem photograph for what it was, a picture of a corpse, the very habit of posing the dead as if they were sleeping indicates that they, they did not associate the dead body, as we do, with a difficult fact of death. Right? Embodying the power of the spirit to outlast death, the corpse provided an expressive medium that people shaped in the attempt to signify a state that was neither wholly accessible nor entirely alien. Death was kind of this liminal state, and its meanings could therefore be mutated in various kinds of ways. Okay. While war photographers could soften the appearance of wounding, dismemberment, and death, they could not make these bodies appear as if they were alive, nor could they include the accoutrements of domestic comfort and affection that helped antebellum mourners figure death as a temporary, if difficult, separation. Gardner's photograph and the commentary surrounding them use the corpse to demonstrate how war destroys ways of managing, honoring, and understanding the dead. Practices that, to a significant extent, shape the contours of reality. 
Out of the reach of intimates, the corpse could not provide a medium for expressing the sadness and desire of grieving individuals. Instead, it fell into the hands of professional journalists who, documenting its woeful isolation, intimated a future in which portraits of dead strangers, wrenching and complete, would tell us all we need to know about the circumstances of distant suffering. Okay, so that's... I hope we've realized we've come quite a distance then from Frasinito on the one hand with this kind of limited sense of documentation to 2004 where, you know, here's a photograph that's really sort of being part of, thought of as cultural history, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the move that's been made. You know, and what I've just sort of narrated is not unique to Civil War photography. You might say that the history of photography itself, the historiography of photography itself, has moved precisely from that kind of discourse about documentation all the way to thinking about photography as part of a kind of cultural history and is therefore subject to all kinds of cultural theories that could somehow bring it, uh, bring it into the fold in various kinds of ways. Okay, you know, that's kind of my little, my little spiel on historiography. Let's talk a little bit about what the sorts of things are going on today with these kinds of photographs and the kinds of attitudes people bring to Civil War era photography. And it's a huge, huge field, we might say. Uh, maybe one way of getting our hands around it is to uh, re return to the kind of um, worrying we did at the very beginning here, where I said that you know the materials of scholarship have tended to concentrate on a very small subset of images, and those subset of images have called to viewers in particular kinds of ways and beckoned certain kinds of interpretations. We might say that what has most recently characterized the scholarship is that all those other underprivileged fields have kind of made their way into uh, um, our attentions and have asked us to think about different things here. You know, I, I see Mary back there. Mary's you know, um, uh, key in doing this, for example, she pays attention to photographs from the South, for example, right? And photographs of children, and portraits of children. Uh, let me provide you one example of many, many examples of the ways in which current scholarship seems to be taking place. And I will use that, you know, uh, terribly undervalued subject matter portraiture as our way of getting at this. Uh, you know, uh, here's my little spiel, you know, I'm talking about <laughs> photography. Portraiture is kind of the bastard child in the history of photographic scholarship. It seems so uninteresting to so many scholars, you know. And in fact, when folks think about the history of photography, they think of all kinds of other subject matters and ambitions, processes, techniques, debates, uh, attitudes, you know, and the great founders of photography, Daguerre over on the left, um, you know, and Fox Talbot over on the right, were themselves harbingers of that kind of attention. They themselves hated portraiture, right? They, they, they didn't think that that was, that was photography's most important uses. Uh, recently, it's come to the attention of photo historians that, you know, uh, if we even think about the origins of photography and the invention of photography, we really should think about them in a twofold way. There is the invention of the photography, the kind of nuts and bolts process of actually capturing an image on a flat piece of paper or a plate. You know, there is the kind of scientific invention of photography. But as Mary Warner Marion tells us, there's also a second invention of photography, the social use of photography. And if we pay attention to this second use of photography, you know, what people make of photographs, how people use the camera, we will realize that unlike Daguerre, who would prefer to think of photographs as a fine art, or unlike Fox Talbot, who would prefer to think of photographs as part and parcel of a gentlemanly science, you know, the vast majority of pictures are of portraits. I love to show my students this 
print. Have, have folks seen this print before? I, I realize it's very difficult to see, but here's where I'll go, go to the interactive part again here. It's a great, great print. Notice the year, 1839, the very year that Daguerre goes up to the French you know, uh, consulate and says, you know, give me my money. <laughs> I invented this thing, give me my money. Uh, and in that very year, this print comes out, and it's by an illustrator in Paris who, you know, as illustrators are supposed to do, they're supposed to foster anxiety and craze and hysteria. Uh, but this is in response. To, sorry, Josh. <laughs> this is in response. This is this is a uh, um, this is in response to Daguerre's declaration of the invention of photography. But not only in response to the declaration of the, the invention of photography, but what Mary Morton Marion says is the social use of photography. It's one thing what the inventors want photographers photography to be about. It's quite another thing what what everybody else wants photography to be about. Can we see what's happening here? There's a long line of people coming from the distant horizon, snaking down below, and forming a line in front of this building, which is a shop. And the shop, we would guess, is selling cameras, daguerreotype cameras. And there's such a line for it. There's such an obsession for it that there's a kind of collective hallucination about what this new invention will bring. There's such a hallucination that it pervades the visual field. If we look at the upper horizon line, we'll see a train chugging past. But if you look at what the train is pulling, all those cars look like daguerreotype cameras. Right? And if we look at the you know, balloon that's floating overhead, the man in the balloon is sitting in a basket, but it's actually a daguerreotype camera. <laughs> and it's kind of this collective hallucination. And then my favorite part of this print is that there's a, um, a gallows right there. And there are all these people hanging in the gallows. And we would guess those people are painters, right? <laughs> right? They're all, they're all or illustrators, right? They're all, they're all kind of swaying in the wind there because they're, they've lost their livelihood, you know? Uh, let's just simply say that, you know, portraiture you know, is not some neutral, you know, backseat subset category. It is a source of enormous anxiety when it comes out. Portraiture has a history, and its earliest moments is, is bound up with a history of intervention. It's bound up with a history of trauma. It's bound up with a history of a world gone upside down and crazy, where the conventional order of things is being, you know, transformed here. You know, portraiture is that force. Right? Um, you know, I, I show my students this. This is a, I apologize. This is a completely grotesque, garish comparison for, for especially for an art historian. But uh, let's just simply say, you know, you know, once upon a time prior to the invention of the camera, there were very, very few people who could actually have portraits made of themselves. You know, and here's, you know, one example, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews done by Thomas Gainsborough here, you know. We don't even need to know who Mr. and Mrs. Andrews are to know who they would like to be. Right? And what portraiture does in terms of facilitating what they would like to be. You know, they, they have a lot of land. <laughs> and they don't have a lot of people tending the land because the land seems to be tended by, to by itself here, right? It's like labor is completely erased from this image here. And there's Mrs. Andrews. God knows if she can read, but boy, she's going to picture herself as reading, right? Uh, or Mr. Andrews there. God knows if he can actually hold a gun there. But masculinity requires or facilitates his sense of manliness here. So portraiture, let's just simply say before photography is a classed, privileged subject matter. With the invention of photography, you know, portraiture is quite 
another thing. It's kind of a social intervention of possibility, you know? Uh, previously, I tell my students this all the time. They have a hard time kind of understanding this, I think, and this is the age of Facebook, where, you know, they think it's just a right to be able to portray themselves. But I, I try to tell them, imagine a time when portraiture sort of, you know, gives you the possibility of representing yourself when previously you had no ability to represent them yourself, you know? And the ways in which you could somehow or other transform yourself um, and take control of your representation. I, I like to bring on this example. This is from where I, close to where I live. You know, this is kind of Northampton, Mass. from 1850 here. Uh, we don't need to know anything about this woman. She's probably a shop girl, worked in the mills. You know, she saved up her money, 90 cents, and brought it to the photo studio, the big town, Northampton, and had a portrait made of herself. And, you know, I tell my students all the time to think about the image on the right and the kinds of fantasies and representations that we can tease out of the image on the right, we could say we should bring to bear on the image on the left as well. That, that portrait over there is all about the way in which one wants to be seen and the kinds of services as she holds a camera, a photograph before us, the kinds of services she realizes that a, a photograph or a camera can facilitate because of what the, the camera can do. Okay, so, you know, when we think about Civil War era portraiture, you know, I would, you know, uh, I think what, what seems to be developing today is to think a little bit more about its status as representation, the possibility it facilitates for masculinity, the possibility it facilitates for class, the possibility it facilitates for racial constructions here, on and on and on and on, okay. Uh, portraiture also helps us think a little bit about that other great neglected subset of materials the home front, you know. Uh, sometimes in historiography, even today, when we think of home front, we tend to think of the home front as it relates to the war front, you know, all of those women being left behind, right, or all the kinds of uh, bodies being brought back, or all the kinds of facilitations and discussions between battlefront and home front. But, you know, one of the things that's becoming quite apparent is that the home front has its own discourse as well. I mean, an enormous discourse that has almost nothing to do with the battlefront here. Uh, we might say that, you know, one of the huge subjects that is becoming quite apparent in the study of the home front is its relationship to, what, the factory cultures, the rise of immigrants, the rise of migrants, the diasporic sensibilities of folks. You know, one of the things that happened during the Civil War, we know this, you know, uh, a lot of towns in the North, which were once sleepy, were transformed into bustling industrial towns to, to feed the war machinery. I'll, I'll give you just one example that I happen to know relatively well. This is also a town in northern, northwestern Massachusetts called North Adams, you know. Today, anybody been to North Adams? Okay, so you all, yeah, you know, it's actually, you, you probably went there for Mass, uh, 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 Mass Mocha, right? And you've gone to... You know, before Mass Mocha showed up, I was there before Mass Mocha showed up. It was just a, it was just a horrible little town. You know, it, like it seemed like it was stopped in 1883 or something like that. Uh, and you know, but you know, uh, in in the 60s, 1860s and 1870s, Mass uh, North Adams was a happening, happening place. You know, and one of the reasons it was a happening, happening place is that it somehow tapped into the blue cloth industry and it sent out, you know thousands and hundreds of thousands of yards of blue cloth for the Union Army going off to war. And so suddenly the sleepy town became a full-fledged factory town. Um, you know, as in the case of lots of towns in New England, 
the original population could not sustain the industry, so suddenly North Adams became the space of immigration and migration. And so French Canadians came down from the border, the Welsh came across the ocean, the Chinese, of all people, showed up across in North Adams as well. So it becomes this enormous place here. Um, one of the things we realize is that portraiture makes its way into this place as well. Uh, I'll show you an example here. We have a photograph on the left uh, of a French-Canadian migrant who has come down from uh, Quebec to North Adams to take his place in what, in this case, a shoe-making factory. Not only did uh, North Adams make blue army cloth, it made lots of shoes for soldiers going off to war. Uh, it so happens, let me give you a little bit of the backstory here. The factory that that French-Canadian uh, shoemaker came to was one that uh, was pretty indifferent to his presence here. So indifferent, in fact, that it caused many of the French-Canadian migrants to organize themselves into a union. Right? Uh, in these early days, unions in North Adams were not happy words, and so right, uh, the factory owner, a man named Calvin Sampson, decides to bust this union. So he keeps bringing in more and more migrants and more and more immigrants into North Adams to somehow put a glut into the workforce to be able to allow him to work without a union shop. It so happens that the French Canadians are enormously successful in organizing all these new recruits, and so North Adams becomes a union town. Calvin Sampson decides this is not right, right? So he decides to send for a body of workers who would be immune to unionization. He calls out west to all those Chinese immigrants and he has them across, come across the newly completed Transcontinental Railroad. They arrive in North Adams. So suddenly, he has all these non-English speaking folks wandering through town. They can't communicate with each other. They can't unionize, right? And here they are, subject to his whims. Um, what do these workers do? Well, they do many kinds of things. But one of the things we also know they do is they go to the photo studio over and over and over again. Uh, I am tickled by the photograph on the left and the photograph on the right. Well, let's imagine who they are. They're both migrant workers. They both come from somewhere else. They're both in North Adams to work in a shoe factory. Right? Uh, I'm struck by how they have themselves pictured, though. Uh, let me take it, I'll, here's the interactive part again, right? I'll take it to the left here. Um, how does this person want himself represented here? Yeah. Yeah? Right. As a, as a skilled laborer. Right, right. So there he is. He's come to the photo studio with his apron on, right? He's brought his shoe. He's brought his hammer. He wants himself posed precisely doing his labor, right? You know, here's a deposed worker who's insisting on his own skilled labor as the proper evidence or the proper signs of his identity. And his portrait is going to be managed with precisely these declarations. But it's quite interesting, you know. Uh, we know that when he was called to North Adams, he was called to North Adams to work in these factories. And the kind of labor he's actually doing in the portrait is not factory labor at all, right? He's there, you know, hammering the little bottom on the shoe and sewing up the little kind of uh, rings around the, the what's called the bottoming part portion of the shoe next to the sole there. And he's insisting on a kind of 
artisanal skill that predates the factory. And it's a curious identification to make, you know. Uh, after all, he was brought from French Canada from the farms, and he learned shoemaking probably in the factory town, and yet he's insisting on a very different kind of identity. You know, we might call it a kind of working class identity, when no such identity was previously available to him, right? And he's claiming that American working class identity. You know, it's kind of curious phenomena. Uh, in contrast, here's the other interactive part. For, yeah, please. More, more leisure and dignity. Um, so there's a contrast there. Yeah. Do you see the, the backdrops as, just to extend a little bit, do you see the backdrops as fitting the poses or in contrast with yeah. the image the person's trying to relate? Yeah. Well, what do you, I'll put it to you. I mean, what, I mean, what do you, what do you think of no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't look like a cobbler's shop at all. It looks like some, well, over on the right, it looks like some Victorian parlor here, right? And over on the left, I'm not even quite sure what to make of that background. There are these tropical fronds over there. You know, you're like you think you're at the South Seas. I'm not even sure why they even have those as backdrops in North Adams, you know? But <laughs> they are, uh, yeah, the, the backdrops seem incongruous to the images there. Yeah, it's a strange sort of scene. They show up in these places, and just like today, you can you know, pick whatever background you want, and here's the guy sitting in this background. You know, I read the photograph on the left you know, as, as you know, everywhere betraying a lack of fit. You know, here he is, an artisan's identity in a factory culture, a working class man in some crazy tropical paradise back there, and it only serves to kind of suggest the, um, the disjunction or discontinuity of the kinds of identities that are on offer for us. Over on the right, I guess there's a, I mean, to follow your suggestion here, there's more of a symmetry, I would guess here, right? Because this is all about leisure in a way here. Uh, but let me push maybe all of us on this. You know, in contrast to the French Canadian guy who shows up here, the Chinese guy brought to North Adams under the exact same conditions, right? Uh, his image of himself is, Right? or what he wants to propose about himself. He's not a man, he's not a working class man, right? He's, what do you think here? Yeah. He's holding a, a fan, right? Right, he's holding a fan here, right? Yeah, right. He's, he's insisting on Chineseness, isn't he? In all kinds of crazy ways here. But, but not just any old Chineseness, right? He's asked, insisting on, I mean, you know, and, and you know, we're not, we have to kind of guess here, but what kind of Chinese, Chineseness is he trying to insist on here, you think? This is like, uh, yeah, please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, this is, you know, and we know this is just, you know, pardon my English, this is just bullshit, right? <laughs> he's, not, he's no upper-class Chinese guy. He's a migrant son from South China who was brought to North Adams because his family needs all kinds of money. And here he is, and he shows up in this place, and, you know, in contrast to the construction of American working-class masculinity over the left, he's insisting on something quite different here, you know? And this, this image, it's hard, I apologize, it's hard to, hard to see here, but this is actually a tintype here. So uh, for those of you who have held tintypes, you know, a tintype allows you to do all kinds of things to its surface, right? So you can paint on its surface, you can carve into its surface, and in fact, he's done some of that here as well. I don't know if you can see it. He's painted a little red pom-pom on his head there, right? And he's scratched onto his shoes little gold things here, you know? And we know full well that 
doesn't have gold on his shoes, right? But in fact, it's all this kind of, you know, he, accessorizing that he wants to do in this image here, you know? And he's affecting a posture, which is, you know, I, I, I looked at a lot of Chinese portraits from this time. It's so unlike any portrait you would see in China, you know? The, the Chinese um, aesthetic for portraiture is, is not about uh, uh, leisurely masculinity. It's about trying to somehow or other uh, liken yourself to Chinese aristocrats. So a common strategy for Chinese portraiture is to sit as large as you can, you know, put your feet out like you're like a sumo wrestler or something like that, as a way to amplify your girth and your bodily presence as, 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 so as to suggest your physical presence and magnificence here. And this is, you know, you'd never see a posture like this in China. Here he's got his legs folded. Um, and, and there's a way in which that kind of um, um, construction of leisure is as much a fantasy as the image on the left. I guess what I would say, therefore, is that you know, the, you know, the ghostly thing in the middle here right, is something that beckons our attention in precisely those kinds of ways as well. Right, please, yeah. Given the way in which you kind of made us have a perspective on previous scholarships such that we might feel a little pain, we forthrightly make, you know, weighing some of that anxiety toward your own view here, I'm struck by how every photograph, you've got to assume every portrait, the, the sitter has a certain image in his mind yeah. or her mind. Right. And, you know, as far as, as I know, it's, it's quite possible we don't get it. Yeah. You know, Somebody covered with tattoos to me looks god awful. To them, they look cool. Right. Uh, so, aren't you wary of any attribution? Of oh yeah. He's trying to do this compared to what he, you know, how much miscommunication happens between the sitter and the viewer. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You're. you're Pointing to absolutely what I'm—I just glossed over, <laughs> which is, which is I, I, I agree with you. There's this far more slippage and excess and 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 um, uh, misunderstanding that goes on. Sometimes we ascribe to photographers far more artistic creativity than they deserve, right? Um, and if you read the manuals uh, from the 1860s, right around the time when um, photographers begin following the armies in huge numbers, and many of them are coming to photography from having done jobs in baking right? <laughs> or, or something else. And they don't really know what they're doing. And so these wonderful manuals are so specific about what photographers should do. You should tell your sitter this, right? And so sit up, put your head this way, put your arms this way. And it's kind of a recipe for how to pose someone. You know, and you can, you can sort of see the results because there are all these sitters who look like they're just mummies. <laughs> they're kind of stuck there in these positions here. Uh, and it, it is kind of this negotiation between a practitioner who's not necessarily very skilled, right, and the desires or intentions which are opaquely readable of the sitter. I'm it's just two, two thoughts. One, of course, is the, the apparatus that, that's limited. I mean, the, break, the body braces, the neck braces. Yeah, yeah. The exposure. So, you know, we have, there are a lot of intervening, you know, mechanical things. I wonder also about you know, the impact. But I also wonder about, as was raised earlier, um, our tendency to, uh, over, to, to overemphasize um, the broadcasting of the self when this is maybe going to one person. Mm -hmm. or this, I mean, other, these are all, for all intents and purposes, perhaps maybe he sent a photograph back to the, the, the Chinese individual. 
excuse the individual on the right sent it to his family. But overall, how this is, these are very intimate. These mm -hmm. were never meant to be seen publicly. I mean, I mean, they're with you know certain exceptions, or at least you know, like, I'd like to raise that point. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, one of the things I think photo historians have begun, to, and correct me for those folks who are being, working on this, one of the things that folks have begun to take seriously is because these images are made in multiples, particularly the carte de visite, you know, that you get them in sets of eight and sets of 12, there is, if not in the execution, the imagination of a public life for these photographs, right? And that one of the huge things that takes place now is not only the rise of portraiture as a kind of medium discipline expressive possibility, but it's corollary, the rise of the album, right? Which is already imagining a public life, if only through the, the fiction of the album itself, right? I mean, one of the remarkable things about these early albums, and maybe we can, I hope maybe some of them they might be here, is that the albums, if they're intact, often suggest that these early users of the album not only saw the album as a repository for the immediate family, but as a way of imagining the family next to portraits of people who they might not know at all. It's one of the weird things, you know, like, uh, it'd be like me having a photograph of me and my kids and my mother-in-law and then Vladimir Putin, you know, <laughs> next, next to me, you know, and you think, what's this about? And, 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 it, and it was very, very common in the 1860s to do this. It was a way of imagining a set of social relationships, if only fictionally. Right, and here was an album, and here were portraits that were, th so not to, 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 to step on your thing, but here was a way in which the portraits were sort of, at least within the services of this album, thought of as public statements, right? And the ways when you can imagine certain kinds of social relations within this space. But I agree with you, there, there, there's a way in which, you know, the portrait also exists only for the mantelpiece, or only exists, particularly with the, the ambrotype, in these private moments of reverie when you open up that box and you look inside and you say, ah, oh, you know, and you close it and put it away. And when I think about the 1860s and 70s and 80s, as it offering a space of amazing possibility for folks who previously had very limited means of self-representation, you know, and, and it's, I mean, if we try on their faces, they're also trying on these faces as well. They're trying on these clothes, they're trying on these habits, they're trying on these demeanors, and maybe some of them fit and some of them don't fit, and it's part of that wonderful, Performance, really, you know, or masquerade, in a way. And those are also, you know, it's a step back. I think I have to close up now. But to step back, to step back, to say, to say that, you know, one of the things that, you know, if we think about contemporary scholarship, in fact, and if we think of cultural theory and cultural studies as entering into the field of photography, and I've also brought up all those those kind of underprivileged photographs here. That's what they're enlisted, enlisting, what they're eliciting here is for us as well.